Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team and Kit. Hello and welcome to another episode of Energy Workforce for Tomorrow, sponsored by Ericsson. I'm here with my trusty colleague and co-host, Jerry Lewis. Hey, Jerry, how are you today? Hey, Jason, I'm doing very well. How are you doing today? I'm good. Not too bad. Who have you brought with us today? Who are we going to interview today, Jerry? We got a special guest today. Greek, Cypriot, English, all over the world, guy from industry, from consulting, and now teaching, bringing those lessons home, James Neofaitu. James, can you give us just a brief overview of your background and experience? Please? Hello, James. Hello, Jason. Hello, Jerry. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a privilege. Yeah, my background. I grew my career pretty much alongside Mr. Duff, alongside Jason. I was a partner at IBM. I was 23 years at IBM. I started at PricewaterhouseCoopers as a CPA, chartered accountant, and then pretty much worked in the oil industry all my career at IBM, mainly exploration and production. Started off in the finance functions and then supply chain. And finally, in my final years at IBM, worked very closely with our Watson and IoT practices to infuse that within the old companies and get them more productive. So that was my background. I understand, James, you traveled all over the world out to actual physical sites. Is that right? And for different oil and gas companies? Lived yeah. outside a suitcase, lived in a suitcase. <laughs> yeah. From about 2001 to 2008, I had one client and that was BP, and I went around the world. So most of the North American assets, West Africa, North Africa, UK. Okay, so you weren't the typical consultant just pushing PowerPoints. You were no, actually doing no, something no. meaningful? <laughs> no, you couldn't wear shiny shoes in Angola. You had to. <laughs> or training goat herders at Rashakia <laughs> on the no. banks of the Red <laughs> Sea. Right. Wait, wait, do you remember that? Training goat herders on the coast of the Red Sea. Did I just hear that come Over out? Over to you, James, for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so that's right. I was very much in operations. I mean, okay. I was in operations. I learned about how energy companies maintain their assets. And that was a golden combination with IoT, predictive analytics at IBM. So we won some really interesting projects to help them. And of course, back in 2006, I think it was. IBM acquired a little company called MRO Software, which mm. makes a product called Maximo. And that combination was just a goldmine for us. Asset management um, software, right? Absolutely. It handled all the asset management and the, that combination of oil and gas and integrating it with SAP, with the full supply chain and finance, gave us really good insights into the operation. Yeah, it's nice when you can do consulting that ties to the operation of the company and it makes the work you do so much more real right? As opposed to maybe just a generic strategy or something, you're actually impacting the way that processes work and the way that the company functions. And I think that's a very rewarding place to be as a consultant. It's, yeah, it's where the value is created. So the Japanese Honda say the Gemba walk means you go to where the value is created. You actually go to where production is made. You go to where the operations run. That's where they generate their revenue. This is where the business cases were quite real. If you can impact half a percent of production, 1% of production, 
the project pays for itself in an afternoon. It might uh, bring us up to date. I switched careers a couple of years ago and I became a school teacher. So I'm bringing. Hold on, hold on. That was 24. How many years ago? Two years ago. You decided, or a year ago? Was yeah. That? He just like, we right. let him go. He decided. Yeah. Life crisis. He was teacher. That's it. You know, once you've done 23 years in IBM, you feel that you've, <laughs> you've earned your stripes. I wasn't quite a five star general. I'd got to where I wanted, and I felt that maybe there's time for an act two in my life. That's when I hit 50. And I felt that teaching, it took me two or three years to work out the journey. Mm. Obviously, financially, there was some planning that needed to be done around <laughs> salary. But yeah, now I teach in the UK, I guess, equivalent of high school from age 11 to 18. I teach maths, I teach economics and business. And I feel that my 20 odd years in the industry makes me a different animal to typical teachers that you get in high school. Yeah. What a contrast between the typical demographic, I'm sure, in the high school and yourself. And if I were you, and maybe someday I'll do the same thing, I've always had a hankering to do some teaching myself. But how does your experience show up in the way that you do instruction or conversations ad hoc or examples? How do you make it real for these kids? I think once you've been like you guys, you know, in the industry for so long, it's in your, the way you speak, your examples. Yeah, I tend to bring in real examples into the classroom. I think if you pick up a textbook, number one, it will be six or seven years out of date. So president of the US is Obama, UK prime minister is David Cameron, already out of date. So let's ignore those. You know, I can Even if it was six months ago, would be out of date these days. Well, yeah, fine. <laughs> we change. In the UK, we're becoming a bit like Italy. We change our governments every six months. But no, I think the experience that I've brought, I can, if we're talking about a specific topic, I can definitely go off piste. You know, I can definitely improvise with the students. They'll have lots of questions. So that aspect, I think the leadership of the school value that. Also, you talk about difference. I mean, as you said, demographically, in the UK, it's 75% females, teachers, women teachers, pretty young population, so under the age of 30. So if you take my profile, just by moving from IBM to a school, I've altered the gender and uh, age diversity in both locations. A few standard deviations from the norm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I've helped IBM with their gender diversity, and I've helped the school as well. Oh, right. You helped IBM by leaving and helped the by school leaving. by joining. What Perfect. a great transition. I think just in terms of what I bring to the classroom and with my energy background and the oil and gas, it's just to bring a sense of reality. I mean, yes, all the energy companies are moving towards the electrification, energy transition, but how are they going to get there? They are the companies that have the capital to make it happen. Where have they generated that capital? Fine, it's from hydrocarbons. We need them for the next 50, 60, 70 years, definitely, if you look at India and China. Yep. Therefore, if I walk across the corridor to the geography department, they'll have posters around protesting against hydrocarbons. So I bring that economic, I don't want to be pompous and say sense of reality, but it's, yes, we're on the journey. Everyone recognizes that now, but it's a long journey mm. and it's going to take investment. It's going to take missteps. It isn't something that's going to change in five years. I'm curious, James, for your thoughts, as I mentioned in our kind of pre-huddle before this podcast. There was an article in The Economist just the other day about the paradox between what all of the 
energy companies are saying and most industries are saying about net zero and what they're actually doing. How do you see companies actually having not only the wherewithal, like the ability to move to net zero, which means new energy sources and things, but also the motivation because shareholder value is the prime directive for publicly traded companies. In that light, what other interventions or, or incentives are required in your view in order to get companies actually moving? Two angles for me. One is, you know, there needs to be a shift and it's going to be a scientific shift, an engineering shift, right? So on the one hand, you need to train people up in a different way. The engineers that are coming through the universities now, they're going to be, you know, the term digital twin we started using three, four years ago. These things become almost the bread and butter. You know, we talk about digital natives. That's going to be part of the tooling. You've got to think about how are we going to model the next operating model of an energy company? There's still going to be demand for hydrocarbons. But the other angle from the school and sort of younger viewers and listeners that are looking at incentives is the whole ESG, you know, environmental, social governance. That investment shift now is no longer a fringe interest group. It's absolutely front and center. So if you can show that you're investing in the right choices for the path going forward and you're part of that transition, then you'll get the talent. You know, half the time I'm talking to the 17, 18-year-olds about to go to university, I put posters up of jobs of the past that no longer exist, jobs of today that didn't exist two years ago. And if we fast forward five, 10 years, there are jobs that we don't know that exist Mm. yet. They haven't been invented yet. So you need to be in data science. That's where it's going to happen, right? The pattern recognition, the anomaly detection, the prediction. That side of things, not only for mm. you know, operational efficiency, but also where they're heading for. So how are they going to get there? I think there's the investment direction in terms of ESG. I think there is the interest of the younger talent. And given the theme of your podcast around the workforce, the digital workforce of the future is who I'm working with now. Mm. And I'm trying in my own micro way to push them into where the value is. I was going to ask you that, James. How do we then, I would agree, and I know Jerry does as well, we discussed this at great length in the team, the energy transition and what we need to do, the first of all, be using digital to get at least to a route towards a better climate. So can we reduce methane leaks? Can we reduce flaring? Can we reuse water a bit better? Then there's the energy transition. But go back to where you are. How do we attract the right skills from the young people coming through? Because you just said, the geography teacher or the geography, you know, how people are seeing oil and gas. The industry has had a bad name the last two years. What's your view, given that you're now sitting in there, of, and it's not just on James Neofaitu's um, shoulders, but what's your view of how do we turn up as an industry? And do we need to do more? Do we need to show a little bit more of what the business can do or what they can achieve to get them back into the industry? That's right. And I think if once you've worked in the industry, you know that It really is people like us, like you and I, earning a living, using our skills. And if you look at, certainly there's a module within the business syllabus that we talk about in terms of return on capital and investment. And if you look at what the energy companies have done and need to do, there's a lot of talk at the moment around taxing them because of their high profits, right? Windfall taxes in the UK and I'm sure in the US. But when I first started in the industry, 
we implemented a project with BP for shared accounting in the UK that covered 25 different entities. I remember this. Yeah. And as an accountant, and we started working with them, we implemented a system to manage about 25 entities. And you saw that to generate expiration operations, you were spending two to $300,000 per day. You explore for two years, you find nothing, you find a dry hole, you would have spent between 50 and $100 million and find nothing at the end of it. Now, that isn't talked about at all. In media, it's not talked about in schools. So I give them that perspective to say there's a lot of risk, entrepreneurial risk. You get reward sometimes and you fail sometimes. You need to recoup those losses, right? So once you do find hydrocarbons, which by the way, you need for, look at the products that come from hydrocarbons, your bicycle wheels, the glue, the (laughs) protesters stick themselves on the tarmac, they begin to see a different picture. It isn't just about emissions and toxic waste in the sea. You get the pictures of birds flapping around in oil. You don't see the huge investment that's been taken. So I try and paint that picture to say, you take a risk, it's for the benefit of the region. And by the way, that first project, we were talking about West Africa, we were talking about North Africa, we're talking about the Far East, Vietnam, developing nations that need energy to boost their industries. Over time, they boost telecoms, they boost financial services, but in the main, they needed energy. So there's a need for it. That picture is never, ever painted. You never hear that story. They need the revenue from the resources as well to try to make the civic advances and the infrastructure advances to Correct. catch up, right? If you're developing yes. you know, in the US here, and certainly I think the UK would be the prime example. I mean, we're talking millennia of development and many developing nations are really just getting started. And so it's not really fair to say, well, you don't get to leverage your resources. It's interesting, James, because I do some interviewing of prospective college students for Stanford University, where I went. Yep. And I often ask them, these high school students, you know, with stars in their eyes and visions of happiness and perpetuity, which is great. You got to have that optimism. I ask them, what are you most worried about? And half of them probably are going to say something about the environment or something about education or something mm-hmm. about some other intractable problem. I try to break it down for them and have them describe the complexities associated with some of these problems. And once they do that, once they break it down into something more than birds flapping in oil, it becomes apparent that it's not so simple. So I think that is really valuable for your students to get that broader perspective on what it means. But coming back to Jason's question, so then are you saying that giving that broader perspective is helping students not feel as negative about oil and gas and maybe feel like, hey, I want to go make a difference here? Or, Yeah, I think it is a little bit, especially when you look at the way that they now brand themselves and advertise. The oil and gas companies, you mean? Yeah, oil and gas companies. Mm-hmm. You will not see a production facility. You'll see Absolutely. an electric vehicle being mm-hmm. juiced up. You'll see solar fields, solar panels, yeah, mm-hmm. wind, renewables. And I asked them, so where did the investment come from to spend in these new ventures, this new exciting renewables and new ventures? It came from building up the infrastructure, as you say, through hydrocarbon. And by the way, if we look at human geography, really looks at India, China, developing world. Look at India, China by 2050, 2070, they will need oil and gas. There's there's just no two ways about it. 
I remember people talking about peak oil when I started my career <laughs> 25 years ago. We've reached peak oil. We're now at 2022. Have we reached peak oil? Yes, there's a transition. They understand the journey. And the best thing I can hear from a student is, oh, I'd, I'd never thought of that before. Mm-hmm. Oh, I get that now. I see what you're saying. That, for me, is winning. And I'm not an evangelist for one or the other. I just wanted to see a balanced view. You know what's funny, James? When you and I went into the industry, yeah. someone mentioned this to me the other day. There wasn't you know, bright stars, Hollywood sort of you know, signs and sort of grandeur and walk this way, here's oil and gas. I'm pretty sure you and I stumbled. I know you and I, because you and I have known each other 24 years, we stumbled into it. Yeah. And so someone challenged me the other day that says, is it not the same for the young ones? I said, I think it's going to have to be different. We will have to yeah. tart it up and show them the Ho Chi Minh projects that we've been doing that are things that are helping cities, countries, the climate. That's going yeah. to be really appealing to mm. the young ones of one of your data scientists or one of your math experts going to finance or distribution or oil and gas, I think the only way of doing it is us getting out with marketing and showing what a difference they can make. And also, I guess my final few years in IBM, obviously, you know, we were winning some really interesting projects around this join up of not only utilities, but the oil and gas companies. So BP moving into transition, Shell doing the same thing. One of the final projects in the UK, I was running the IoT practice for IBM Consulting. And we won a great project with Honda, which was around their connected car. So we were building the engine of the Honda connected car. That connects three things. It connects the car itself with sensors. It's the driver and their experience, but also the surrounding environment. So if you're driving along and you get an offer from a retail station to juice up your car to recharge it, it suddenly becomes a retail conversation. So we thought we were in an automotive project. It ends up being, actually, there's an energy aspect in terms of recharging the car. So the BP account was interested. And then the retail guys came along and said, no, 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 that's our territory, retail. (laughs) Suddenly, this convergence of industries and the whole kind of silo of how the industries work in IBM, and I know the P&L works that way, but it's more interesting when you've got this connection. So you've got all the capabilities and the skills coming in together I still wax lyrical about IBM in terms of its design thinking and agile and all of that IX. I loved my interactive experience colleagues in the UK. We worked really closely. Anyway, my point is, if I say, look, is it retail? Is it electrification? Is it oil and gas? Is it urban planning? Suddenly, you've got a five-fold interest in your stakeholders because everyone's got something to say about that. It's It's no longer about... Honda, it's now five different industries connected. That's collaboration. That's the way the world is now. That really excites the money. If you were to give advice to oil and gas companies, to energy companies about how to describe the possibilities, how much of your advice would be around paint a bigger picture, right? It's ecosystem plays, it's new tech, it's be part of the transition. What would your advice for those and for our listeners and our clients be? I think all of those things, but Collaboration is hard, let's face it. It takes time. You've got to get your stakeholders on board. But what I always found in IBM and PwC before that is if we paint a picture of the outcome, outcomes-based, if our commercial models, another one of my mentors used to say to me, good proposal, but if you put as much effort into the commercial proposition, then we'll win this work, right? If you make the outcomes valuable and interesting, you paint a picture of where it could be, yeah? And you work towards that. Collaboration is just hard work. 
just doing that, saying, well, you know, that's going to slow us down because collaboration to some people is, I've got more stakeholders to manage now. Um, mm. I'd rather work for the Chinese national oil company or we'll just get it done in two years. That state planning is sometimes helpful. We're not in that world. So paint a picture of the outcome. Where could we be? The design thinking guys do this very well. I'm sure you, Jerry, your team, et cetera. You know, the hills, the what, why, and wow, the wow factor, size chunks. You know, we can achieve this in three months, six months. A lot different to when we started, when it's, you know, we've got a five-year production plan and we're going to have the same team and build up our local content. The world has changed a lot. So here's a paradox that I see a lot frequently. Jason, I'd be curious for your comments on this too and James, your reflection. Mm. You said earlier that the rubber meets the road for oil and gas companies in the upstream exploration and production, right? If you move something by half a percent, you're delivering a massive return. Right, hundreds of millions of dollars and billions in investment. Well, there are some oil and gas companies whose entire spend on IT on digital is a billion dollars or less. Yeah. And what's the incremental margin that's going to be generated by that investment? It's nowhere near pumping an extra million barrels of oil. And so, what you find is the incentives of the organization, the way it's aligned, the way that it prioritizes its efforts, and the value it places on the things it's asking its employees to do are heavily skewed, as you would expect, toward the deliver the production side of it. And yep. so it's almost like the rest of it doesn't even matter in the sense of urgency, right? And you got to have urgency to deliver with agility and to be breaking down barriers to do ecosystem plays yep. and things like that. So how do we reconcile that? Because I don't see that changing anytime soon. Mm. I think you're right. I think it's been since I was in the industry, it's always been the issue. And there's always a view of don't touch it. You go to the production side. I don't know how many fields, again, James, Q and I from Baku yep. to the others of don't touch it. It's flowing. Everyone's absolutely scared to get involved. And even if there could be a chance of adjusting it or adjusting a choke, et cetera, there's a, actually, yeah, I've been working with some of the old field services. And their view is we're trying to get people to try and use digital. And as these valves become electronic, et cetera, away from hydraulic, you could tune them, et cetera. It's difficult because the guys that, no, no, it's flowing. Let's look somewhere else. I have a sense, I was in Lucerne two weeks ago with Slumbergy on the digital forum. And I think most of the CEOs were the oil and gas. It was really interesting. I think they all realize, and I'll go back and use the word COVID. We haven't used it yet. But to be honest, I thought everything stopped for two years. We all did. Let's be brutally honest. I was reading some the other day and someone said, yeah, we still did some projects. No, we didn't. They're sitting behind the desks of people with dust on them now. And what you're seeing the oil and gas companies now doing is, and we need to get on with this and actually do the work and go back to it. I think the invention of digital, the more understanding of the ecosystems, et cetera, the more you can do with this, I think that will help things actually go. But I think then that ties the whole thing together of once we start seeing the possible, because we were about there in 2020, end of 2019, 2020, we were starting to look at digital really seriously not getting away from the technology and looking at the process of how to, an end-to-end process, an output impact, I think it's going to come back again. And I think that's the bit, Jerry, that will change us. Mm. James, I don't know if you've got a view of that, but that's my sense. No, I, I agree. And also, digital oil field was a phrase that grew up over the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. And digital oil field, over time, began to become the natural way of working. As you say, you go from mechanical to electrical your instrument control, 
your IoT devices, suddenly you're running a field from anywhere. You yeah. know, you could run a field in Azerbaijan from Chicago. It doesn't matter anymore. That's changed over time. You know, from the production side, that will still be needed. I guess then it's the moving to downstream, you know, midstream, downstream and retail. That's the face to the public. And that's what gets talked about. I was yeah. on a call this morning with Slumbershane. We were talking about OSDU, so Open Subsurface Data Universe. Now, I think as a platform, we've pushed that way too hard in the last two years again. Again, the OSDU guys will be in a whole bunch of comments on here. Though. But actually, <laughs> the discussion with Slumbershane was more on, we should be leading the conversation with end-use cases. So, James, exactly back to your point. I mm. think people get very excited with technology. We all pump OSDU and say, bang, that's the platform. Here we go. But hold on, why are you doing it? Mm. And I think that's the exact conversation Gavin Goodland and I had on Slumbersy this morning of, guys, it has to be end-use case-led. Mm. So this is us going to market with Slumbersy, looking at sort of data residency, where the countries with data residency issues, and looking at OSDU, but really coming out from an end-use case. So then the view is, if you can crack the end-use case, it's going to have an OSDU platform. Right. And I think that's the difference. I've just tried... Jerry, you give me some, but for me, that's the biggest case. I used it this morning. Yeah, that's my I, view. It makes a lot of sense to put the use case or what you're delivering front and center as opposed to the technology in the platform. That'll solve itself. And you know that maybe comes back around to where we can start to close, Jace. I love seeing folks with real-world experience come back and bring that into the realm of teaching. I think it's super valuable. And increasing the diversity inside the teaching corpus is really important. I think there's a need for kind of all sides, right? Folks who are just focused on teaching the core skills and all of that, but there's got to be some more life coaching skills, relationship management, all the things that you can bring, James. So it's really great to see that. And I really appreciate your contributions to the future of our society, collective society. And thanks for joining us. And it is podcast. on his shoulders. What we've just realized, it is on James's shoulders to change the whole world. It and is. The whole sort of yeah, the schooling, et cetera, to make sure that we attract the right staff back. Isn't that what we summarized? One class <laughs> another time. <laughs> I'm trying to show them the new skills that will be needed. It's a good time to try and bring those into the classroom and try and shape the careers that they're heading in. So I'm enjoying it very much. James, I loved you for 24 years. Maybe loved is a different one. But yeah, let's use love, James. <laughs> I'm on with it. I forgot one thing. James, you wrote a book and it's called Angels of Morphia. And was Jason one of those angels? I mean, based on what he just <laughs> that, said. That's uh, where we got the love from. Yeah, actually, <laughs> there you go, James. Let's talk about your books. That was another one of my midlife. So after I became a teacher, you suddenly find when you're a teacher that you have six weeks in the summer when you're doing nothing. And that's after 32 years after leaving university, having six weeks was absolute bliss. It was wonderful. Mm. You know, I was writing weekly articles for a London Greek paper in English, and I collected them in a book together. So it's called Angels of Morphia. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. <laughs> we'll be sure to put that in the show notes. Yeah, it's fantastic, yeah. by the way. It's a great book. There is a chapter on Vietnam, actually, and that chapter is actually dedicated to Mr. Jason Duff. Thank you. That was an eye-opening experience for me, Vietnam. We were there in 2001. Yep. Very young population good at language, outstanding at IT. I think in the article I say Vietnam's going to be the new India in terms of IT outsourcing. It's getting there, James, by the way. Not quite correct prediction, but not far off. It was a really fantastic experience. So that's the sort of article I put in there, trying to bring that. I write a few articles about teaching and my impressions of it. 
yeah, the best moments are when students suddenly get something. They say, oh, yeah, that's the best moment. Or if they say, I never thought of it that way before, sir. Yeah. And it's also been nice to be called sir. I haven't been called sir ever. <laughs> no one ever called me sir at IVM. Sir, wait, so are you saying you've been knighted? Is it Sir James? <laughs> is, that, is that what you're saying? That's the big announcement on yeah. this podcast, yeah. And I also understand, by the way, that this wasn't just an ego boost for you. You were actually asked to write the book. It wasn't like you decided, I'm going to write a book and then tried to flog it. Somebody no, asked you to write it. Is no, that right? that's right. It's the London Greek paper called the Barigiagi. I was writing for them for about three years every week. And once I reached 100 articles, they put some money together and we published this book. So yeah, it was good fun. Oh, oh congrats. James, I think, awesome. I think you've always been a great colleague and buddy of mine. I think your skills have always been immense. You know that. I'll go back and reiterate Jerry's point. To take that back into schooling, I can't think of a better teacher with your right skills. So Thank you. Totally Thank you. hats sure. off to you of doing what you wanted to do. I know it was a tough one as well, but making a huge impact and just make sure every day you go into that geography class, will you? Thank you. <laughs> change Thank change you. their mindset. Actually, you know what we'd like to do? Jerry, here's an idea. Mm. We're talking Southern University and LSU, etc. Wouldn't it be great to try and get James involved in another debate like this with an American college or school? That might be interesting, mm. James. Okay. You know, just different perspective, etc. Yeah. That would be a real well, cool. Depending on the school and how woke it was, it could be a cage match oh, you know, oh, instead oh, of a debate. I'll bring a geography teacher. That would match the wokeness. Bring yeah. your weapon of choice. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, for our listeners, this is not an anti-woke podcast. No, We're just no. having some fun. Everybody just, just relax. Among friends. It's going to be okay. Indeed. It's going to be okay. So James, right. thank you very much. Jerry, any last words before we sign off? No, thanks, James. Really great to see you here on the podcast. And Jason, good to see you as always, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you, Jerry. So guys that listening to this, please give us your comments. We will adapt, adopt, improve. And if you want to get involved, someone like James and getting onto the podcast, drop Jerry, Brian, myself or the other team a call. Thank you very much, guys. See you at the next episode. Thanks, James. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you. Thank Bye -bye. you. Take care. Thanks. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. <laughs>